0: Fourth of July was on Thursday, and so we're not celebrating the Fourth of July on July 7th, but I thought it would be useful to see if the readings that we read today from uh, Second Kings, from Galatians, and from the Gospel uh, deliver up to us any themes that may have something to do with uh, our self-image as the American people, and what inspiration we might take for our future Uh, attempt to uh, continue to live into this work in progress, which is the United States of America. What does it mean when we speak about what we stand for and who we are and how we're constituted? So when we move to 2 Kings, we have a, a, a good story about Naaman from Syria, who is a great advisor to the king in Syria, and he has leprosy. I'll revisit this in a couple of minutes, but leprosy was the most feared disease in the ancient Near East, and it was considered absolutely uncurable. Now, we don't know what they meant by leprosy. We know it's a skin disease. It probably wasn't Hansen's disease, which is the leprosy that uh, we now call Hansen's disease. But it was certainly some scruffulous condition that was very unsightly and off-putting to people. So Naaman is sent to the king of Israel to have him heal him. And the king of Israel, it says, was very upset and he tore his clothes which in the ancient Near East, if you tear your clothes, you are very upset. (laughs) So what am I going to do? And is he trying to pick a fight with me? Are we going to have to have some sort of a war? What is this that's going on? And one of the king's advisors said, Look, send him to Elisha, the prophet, and Elisha will heal him. So Naaman is sent to Elisha, the prophet, And Elisha doesn't even come out of his house. He stays in the house, sends out a minion, and the minion said, go wash in the river. By then, Naaman is furious because he's a big shot, and he thinks he's been discounted by this prophet Elisha. And how dare he? And as a matter of fact, the rivers in Syria are far better rivers than the river that he has been asked to go wash in. So he's about ready to leave in a, in a fit of pique when a couple of his minions come up to him and say, "Look, if, if, if Elisha had asked you to do something that was complicated, you would have done it. But this simple thing, no, you don't want to do." And they give, they say to him what we say in uh, contemporary language: "Look, go do it. It can't hurt, and it might help." Right? You ever been in a situation like that where you say, well, I don't know, if this is going to, but it can't hurt and it might help. So he does and he's healed. Now here's the point of this story. Jesus will use this story in his preaching and teaching in the Gospels. And he'll use it as a sign that his message is not being heeded By the people of the covenant, his own people. Because he said, here Naaman the the prophet uh, from another country, a foreigner, was the only one who was healed during the time of the prophets in Israel because they weren't listening. And furthermore, it's a reminder to them that when healings take place like healings of leprosy, it was believed by the people of the covenant that it was a sign of the nearness of the Messiah. Healing uh, of leprosy is a messianic sign. And you'll recall when we read the Gospels, we hear a lot about Elijah and Elisha as precursors to the Messiah, Jesus, in the Christian view. And so it's a sign of a couple of things. God's saving message is not just for the people of the covenant, but it's for everyone. God reaches out and heals the leprosy of Naaman the Syrian, an outsider. And so too in the preaching of Jesus we see a continuous reiteration of the fact that this message is for everyone. God's saving embrace is for everyone, not just for a select few. It's a story about inclusion and about its centrality and importance. I think this has a lot to do with what's going on in this country, to be perfectly honest with you, because it seems to me, this is one man's opinion, but you know, it seems like we're walking backwards. We're we're figuring out ways to divide people up, keep some people in and some people out. And remember, many of the ones who are on that keep them outside are people who claim to be uh, faithful to the gospel of Christ, faithful to the message of inclusion, who now believe it is politically expedient not to keep people in. And so when we read our sacred literature, it tells us something about where we ought to be, what kind of country we want to have. And this is strengthened and reinforced in different ways in the reading from Galatians. Some of you may be relieved to hear that this is the last reading from Galatians we have in this cycle. We're reading the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Galatians. By the way, we talk in the Episcopalian 101. This is the text where he says at the end of his letter, see what large letters I'm making in my own hand. I'm writing, Greek, in my own hand. And it's a further example that it tells us Paul dictated his letters to his secretary. But this, it was time, give me this writing in my own hand. And what is he writing about? Well, he begins in the reading today with how we understand the differences and the controversies within our own community. And Paul says that we need to be easygoing and generous with people who appear to have strayed, you know, and that we are to bear one another's burdens What does it mean to bear one another's burdens as the community of faith? It means that we are in some way understanding our connection one with another, that we understand that uh, our common humanity creates an environment whereby we take each other seriously, that the Savior's preaching and teaching focused on that fact that everyone is made in God's image and called good, And by virtue of that, we honor that presence in each each of us. The Spirit of God present in every human being. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And so Paul begins to outline in the conclusion of his letter some of the things that we do. One of the things he talks about in here is, it appears a few times in the New Testament, is you reap what you sow. Karma, right? A reference to the karmic forces of the cosmos that are at work. Now here's the problem. Jews, Christians, and Muslims believe that the course of events is altered by our personal faith and the will of God. So what do you do with a system that says the way we understand reality in the course of human events has to do with past, present, and future all being collapsed into one another and be the governing uh, cause and effect? You've heard me say many times that uh, the problem with understanding past as prologue which in the therapeutic culture that we've lived in for the last 40 or 50 years in this country, is that your past somehow is predictive of your future, right? I have issue, I have family of origin issues, All right. Well, the problem with using that as an absolute rule is that the same cause... Has paradoxical effects. A child raised in a scrupulously neat family will either be a neatnik or a slob or something in between. Past experience is not necessarily predictive of future behavior. But if you believe it is a fast law, then you're going to always be governed by this kind of endless, I think it's called samsara, you know, cause and effect, the cycle that keeps going on. And yet it is true to a large degree that we do reap what we sow. So maybe what Paul is talking about here is thinking about these things in a comparative religion sense is always done on an either-or basis instead of a both-and. What Paul chooses to outline at the end of his letter is that the the importance of discipline and personal responsibility, bearing one another's burdens, in other words, uh, to, uh, to have a society that errs on the side of compassion, sitting lightly on your prerogatives, not misusing power, understanding that our actions have consequences. There was a congressman who was, I guess, the chairman of the Agriculture Committee in the the House of Representatives about two or three weeks ago who uh, moved the committee to vote uh, to to, uh, eliminate a lot of the food stamp program in this country. And he quoted from Paul in another place and said, those who don't work should not eat. And then we discovered that this guy had received $14 million over the last eight years in agricultural subsidies. The purest socialism in this country. Paying people for not growing stuff. Unknown in Europe. It's an outrage. And to fall back on the biblical witness as an excuse for excluding people, not bearing other people's burdens in some compassionate and sympathetic fashion, and being willing to find out the ways and the means to move people off dead center into more self-reliance and greater prosperity. It's a disgrace. A disgrace. And Paul, if he were alive, would preach against it. In the gospel, we have... Uh, Luke's version of the sending of the missionaries. And all the, gospel, all the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have uh, one of these stories. In Matthew, <clears throat> 12 are sent. And these are symbolic numbers because 12 means that he was sending the representatives uh, to the 12 tribes of Israel Matthew's gospel is a very Jewish gospel. Matthew was a rabbi, a former rabbi, and he's saying that the message of the Savior was to the 12 tribes to preach to them first, at least. Luke, a Gentile, sends 70. Some of the other early manuscripts say 72, and that's because it was believed in the ancient Near East That there were 70 nations, right? 70 countries in the ancient Near East. So he's sending the the disciples to preach to the nations. And they go on their missionary journey and they achieve a great success. Some biblical scholars, this may be more information than you need, but you know me. When I was in seminary, there were a number of books written about, uh, commentaries on the Gospels, and some believe that Luke was uh, using this story uh, to uh, retroject from the into Jesus what the post-Easter Church is preaching and teaching in its missionary work. But the problem with that is that what Jesus says in today's gospel is go and preach that the kingdom of God is near you, which is Jesus's preaching. It isn't about the resurrection and everlasting life and Him returning. It's about go and tell people that the kingdom of God is near you and more to the point, you are needed to fulfill God's plan for the cosmos, each of us, in big and small ways. So if you read it in the original language, the kingdom of God is near you means right here, right next to you, you know. Some people translate that as within you. Not bad. And it means that all of us have the capacity... To reflect to the world the values of the kingdom of God. Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. The fruits of the spirit. All of those things are possible. And that when we do that, we have the capacity to move things. Relationally. Into a direction that is more godly. Where I say, you know, this isn't from me as a, as a made up thing. The founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, Peter Moran, together with Dorothy Day, who's maybe somewhat more famous, used to say always when he gave a talk, we must labor to create a society where it is easier for people to be good. Preaching the kingdom of God is near you is, is a part of that process. That you and I must labor for. So Jesus has the seventy or the seventy-two return, and they're absolutely jubilant because they have had great success on this journey. And they came back and said, "We we were you know. We had control of everything." And Jesus said to them, "That's great, but you know what? You got to give credit where credit's due." what you were doing was moving in the power of the Spirit of God and it was God's work in you that produced this. And so, to use another contemporary phrase, you need to cultivate an attitude of gratitude about how you think uh, God's working in your life and in the lives of those near and dear to you. And I think in this country right now, it wouldn't hurt us uh, to have a little better attitude of gratitude. And it wouldn't hurt us to uh, take one another seriously and to remind people that the kingdom of God is near them. And we believe that with all our heart. So this week, give thanks for God's inclusive work. Ask God to help you be a better instrument of this inclusive work in the world. It's absolutely vital. You know, there is a danger, isn't there? And one of the things when we say all this and we talk about inclusion and we talk about its importance and so forth, it can seem as though we are um, supporting an increasing balkanization of the culture. You know, everybody in some way or some form is an aggrieved party. And yet at the same time, maybe that's because we've, we know it's like Dennis the Menace. Dennis the Menace said to Mr. Wilson, You know, if I knew what I know now at eight, when I was five, I would have had a better time. And maybe some of the things that we learn about this are the, are the complexities and the difficulties. And uh, the call of God for us to move out to extend, and to risk, and to understand that we are to labor for uh, the unitive work of the Spirit of God in the world. Give thanks for being an instrument of that work. Amen.